Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, the only blockchain event and media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into the crypto and blockchain space, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you won't be disappointed. You know, I remember the day. It was 2011 and the Bitcoin price was pumping. And you're all thinking, wow, the price is pumping to what, $20,000? No, the price was pumping to $36. And the price was around $32. And I felt that I had not had enough Bitcoin at that time. I was like, shoot, I'm going to miss the boat. Price is $32 per Bitcoin. And I'm not going to make it. If, if this, is, if this is my one and only chance to get into Bitcoin, because if I don't get in now, more enough. I feel like I had the FOMO. I, I had the FOMO. I didn't have enough Bitcoin. So there was really no way to buy Bitcoin back then. This was before BitInstant existed. This is when, when Mt. Gox was probably actually trading Magic the Gathering uh, cards. There were really no ways to buy Bitcoin. And my next guest ran a company called Trade Hill. And Trade Hill was the only way, probably one of the first exchanges in the world and this was again 2011 and at that time was the the only american bitcoin exchange um actually one of the nicest looking and properly working uh exchanges and i was at a a bar mitzvah and i tried sending some money to trade hill i wired money to his uh ing direct account and i'll never forget this story i wired money to jared's um ing direct account and Within like a few hours, Jared announces that all my banking got shut down and all your money stuck. And I'm like, shit, I just got this Bitcoin thing and I can't even buy it because the exchange's bank account got shut down. Is this guy a scam? What's going on? Am I going to get my $1,000 back? But let me have my next go- my next guest tell the story. Jared, we've known each other for so long. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Charlie. Um, glad to be here. Yeah, that was probably back, uh, what, June 2011? Does that sound about right? I think a little bit earlier than that, but what, what happened that day? Um, oh, man, when, you, when you're talking about bank accounts and things, it was just, it was just ridiculous. Um, you know, I think that account was open for maybe a month. Um, you know, it, back then, you know, no one knew what Bitcoin was. So if you tried to explain it to a bank, they you know, they would just say, oh, wait, so you can't control it. It's anonymous. Or they would Google it and they would see, you know, you know, Chuck Schumer saying it's only good for money laundering, drugs and terrorism. <laughs> and uh, when a bank sees that as their first re- first result on your but product. No, but that's actually what happened. That's what they that's what he no, said. Chuck Schumer went on TV. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not saying it was, you know, somebody misquoting him. That's that's exactly what he said. And when your only real source is is U.S. Senator uh, saying it's, it's for everything that you're supposed to be against. Um, you know, it's, it's not good. So, I mean, we had bank accounts that got closed, you know, in one day, two days, um, you know, that ING account stayed open for a little bit and we weren't, we weren't dishonest with them. I mean, we told them what we were doing and it was just, um, it was just, we were small enough that, 
that it, it didn't matter. And then as soon as we started doing real volume, they looked at it and they were just instantly closed. And, you know, there was, I, I remember specifically like Citibank, um, which we had at the time a, a decent amount of money, let's just say three or 400,000, which, you know, by today's Bitcoin standards is, is, is nothing. And um, we weren't even using the account. It was our backup account. And it sat there for a month with nothing happening. And, uh, and then I went to log in and it was frozen. And, uh, and I, so I went to the bank and I was in San Francisco at the time. And I, I said, you know, Hey, what the hell's going on? I got, you know, 322,000 or whatever it was. And, um, they just said, sorry, business decision, your account's closed. And we hadn't even used it. It was just literally sitting there and it was just operating funds for the, for like the a backup account. Yeah. Backup account. And also just, it was our operating funds for keeping them in there. So um, it took 22 days to get a to get a check for our balance, uh, 22 business days. So it was like a month, and I um, I just kept asking, and they wouldn't tell us. And then uh, and then one day I went home, and this is you know this was at the time on um, on Sixth uh, Street between Fifth and Sixth Street, and on in Soma in, in San Francisco, which is if you know the area, not not the uh, most pleasant place in 2011, 2012. You and, and I lived in a warehouse together that, back then. This was that warehouse. And uh, I just saw this unmarked envelope uh, sitting on the street when I came back and I picked it up. I opened it. It was a check for 300, the check for 320 something thousand dollars. And it's like, oh, okay. Well, that's how you treat Close a bank account. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, that story about 50 times over. I had a spreadsheet. I talked to somewhere between two and 300 banks, been rejected from most of them and then kicked out of about 30. Did you quickly get jaded? Um, towards banks. Yeah. But I, I think, in a in a lot of regards, I, I mean, that was probably the, some of the best moments of my life and memories and, and, and whatnot during that period of time. Um, it was just so intense and, and, um, you know, I, you, you talk about the FOMO, um, I didn't ever have the FOMO. I mean, I got into Bitcoin when it didn't really have a price. And um, I kind of got into it for basically the same, like all the all the really old guys, um, and obviously include you in this, um, they got into it for a different reason. I never, I don't remember people saying, oh my God, if this goes to, you know, 10,000, I'm gonna be a billionaire. Um, because it didn't really seem possible. It felt more like we were trying to push uh, an amazing piece of technology that could do amazing things for the world. And that's how I felt. I mean, I, I wasn't really, I got to hold as much of this and, and, and make money. And maybe because we didn't think it would actually happen. <laughs> there was no real money involved. It wasn't like if the price goes up, we can buy a new Lambo. It was, oh, maybe if this thing, price goes up, I could buy a new hard drive. But that wasn't even like a conversation about about this thing, price going up. You didn't start an exchange for the price to go up. You started the exchange because you wanted to get Bitcoin in the hands of as many people as possible. Well, that and uh, there was one exchange for the most part, Mount Gox, and it was just um, pretty fucking terrible. Um, you know, it, it's a uh, understatement of the year. Yeah, yeah, I was trying to be modest, and um, and it's it 
I was just like, man, we have this decentralized currency and there's basically one place in the entire world to buy it. Um, that just sounds like a single point of failure, you know? And we took a big, a big bite out of Gox. I mean, I think, um, you know, had we been able to bank consistently, I mean, I think there would have been no question, but, you know, I don't, I don't remember if we were Why was it that volume. Mount Gox was able to bank, but we weren't here in the US. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny. You had a, I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if, if their authorities just weren't looking into it enough. I mean, the United States has um, really strict um, anti-money laundering and, and know your customer rules. And um, they're, they make it really pretty difficult to do anything in the gray area. I mean, ask, you know, ask anybody who's been doing, you know, legal medical marijuana for the last 15 years, you know, how, how they like banking. Um, and I mean, and that's specifically illegal, illegally, or sorry, that's specifically illegal federally. So, you know, that, that might be a little bit of a different case, but, but anything that's, that's in the gray area is just ridiculous. And then anything that has anything to do with, with sending money. Um, and then on top, you know, in a way you're competing with the banks and you're, you're kind of saying, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to over overthrow you. You know, did you get into any like, uh, arguments with these banks? Did you, did you get pissed off ever? Um, no, I mean, well, I didn't get outwardly pissed off. I mean, I did. I, I think I just realized that it was futile and, um, you know, like, you know, why, why get, you know, why am I going to yell at a, at a person at a, at a desk in, in chase? Um, you know, and which I'm still banned from chase, by the way, I tried to test out I'm, their prepaid. I'm banned uh, from like every, <laughs> every bank, uh, chase they would, Wells they Fargo. Me a prepaid card a couple of years ago when I was testing it out. I wanted to, I was, you know, working on some payments. I want to see how it worked. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna get a prepaid card. You know, what you about can, credit cards? Can you get credit cards? Oh man, I had a, I had a weird case, uh, like, let's just say back like 2014, 15. And, um, my credit inexplicably just died off. And, um, and then I, I went to get a credit card and, and the guy was like, yeah, your credit report came back at like two fifteen or something. And I, I said, does it even go that low? No. I said like, isn't the, <laughs> isn't, isn't the minimum like three 50 or 300 or something. I don't remember what it was, you know, but he's like, yeah, you're like 80 points below the minimum. And I'm like, how's that possible? And he's like, <laughs> he's like, I've never seen that from people that have like five bankruptcies. And, and, and I had, I had a hundred percent perfect credit, you know, I, I didn't have anything on there and it, it dropped off. And then he, you know, and then I ran it again and it came back at zero and I was like, okay. Um, so I couldn't get a card. I couldn't get anything. It was really weird. Um, I mean, it, it straightened itself out over after a year or something like that, but it was a really weird. And, uh, I talked to somebody else that had the same, um, same thing happen. I don't like to throw any names out just cause. No, of course. Privacy, but. So here you are in, in 2011 and you're not only having to pitch your company to the banks and pitch your, um, your company to investors and hell pitch this company to your friends and family, but you have to pitch the industry. You're not just selling trade Hill, but you're trying to sell Bitcoin to people. 
Um, and again, this was 2011. Why did you do it? I'm just curious. I mean, so, I mean, you know, I, I, I heard about it in 09 and then I, I started like really working on something in, in, in 2010 and, you know, in 09, 2010, um, you know, there was there, 2009 is year zero. Yeah. But creating yeah. the new Satoshi calendar. So 2009 was one, one AS one after Satoshi. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, it, for me, it, I, I'm going to be completely honest. I was a little bit naive. Um, I've always, I've always, hold on. My computer is shutting off. I'm going to sleep. Okay. No worries. Um, We're now I'll, in the year 10 after Satoshi. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm going to be a little honest. I was, I was, I was a little naive and, um, and, you know, just straight up ignorant to, to a lot of finance. And, um, I mean, I've learned a hell of a lot in the last 10 years, but, um, I didn't think it was going to be that hard. And, uh, I, I knew what Bitcoin was capable of from a technological perspective. And I knew the problems that the world faced and I knew how many, how much good it could do and all the things it could solve. Um, I was, I was in Chile at the time and I would have to send money between the United States and Chile. And it was just an utter nightmare. And not to mention if you're wiring, you know, at best you can, you can work, um, you know, Monday through Friday, assuming there's not holidays and other things and during business hours, you know, for sending wires. And, um, and then I, I found with Bitcoin, you could send a, you know, nearly infinite, um, amount of money assuming the money supply was there which back then you could probably send like you know yeah 50 bucks or something um but you know it, it i saw that it could be scaled and everything um and i basically just said you know i've always had an interest in cryptography uh, economics and finance and i've been involved with finance tell me about that uh which part just your history of finance and economics so um you know when i was when I was a kid, my grandfather who, you know, raised me was, you know, we'd watch the stock market close every day and he'd explain everything. And, you know, I was, you know, one of the few four, four-year-olds that knew what a PE ratio was and could explain it. And, and, you know, I'd look at most people still don't know what a PE ratio is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could probably explain it better when I was four than now. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so basically he, would let me pick stocks and we'd analyze them and stuff. And, you know, my grandfather, he, um, you know, he wasn't, uh, you know, we didn't really come from money. He was, he worked for the telephone company and he hadn't gone to college and he worked his way up in management and everything and, and just had to, uh, smartly invested his money throughout his life. And, um, you know, I mean, we didn't have a, you know, a vacation house or anything like that. Our, our sailboat was, you know, like a, you know, $5,000 sailboat when people are like, you know, I, I, I've got friends now that are like, well, I grew up sailing too. And I'm like, no, no, you had it. <laughs> it's a different type of sailing. You had a crew. Like, you know, we, our table folded into a bed. There's a little bit of a difference. Um, and, uh, you know, so he, he taught me about all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I was picking stocks and, and, you know, my first, my first, you know, pick that I completely picked on my own was, um atari and because this was like i don't know let's just say 90 
92, 90, so 92, I was 10. So the Atari Jaguar was coming out and, or Lynx, God, I forget, Jaguar. And, uh, yeah, I told my grandfather about it and Atari was in the shitter, you know, it was down at a dollar and, and I convinced them that the Jaguar was going to do, do really well. So we, you know, put a pretty hefty hundred dollars into it and it went up to seven. One. In the house. Yeah. Well, when you're 10, a hundred dollars is a ridiculous amount of money. That's pretty much my entire net worth. And, um, so I went all in on Atari and, uh, went up to, to seven and, um, my grandpa was like, Oh, you're up 700% in a month. And I, and I, I said, is that pretty, you don't do that all the time. And he's like, yeah, you should sell that. So I, uh, <laughs> so it, I sold it and it went up to like 11 or something. And I was pissed. I wasn't still holding it. Listen, no one lost money taking profit though. Yeah. Yeah. I learned an important lesson that day. And then it promptly like went back to normal Atari, um, the Atari that we've known ever since the, it's heyday. It's an epic pump and dump Atari. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, I felt pretty good and that kind of got me hooked on it. And then I just, you know, casually invested over the years. And, and then when, you know, I'd always been interested in cryptography just as a hobby. Um, and, uh, and then when Bitcoin came around, I, I mean, I'll be honest, I just got, you know, lucky finding it. I mean, I think um, I was mining on my laptop back then and I stopped mining because uh, I was just getting like a block a day. And, and it was just, you know, in retrospect, you know, 25 20, Bitcoin a day, 50, 50 Bitcoin. Oh yeah. This is before 23rd. So it was 15 Bitcoin, a tw- uh, 50 Bitcoin a day. And um, what most people don't realize is that Anyone running the Bitcoin software from 2009 to 2011, maybe end of 2011, you're actually mining because the there were so little people mining this thing. This was before even graphic card mining. This is before ASIC, before Bitmain. Uh, as long as you ran the software on your computer, Bitcoin Core, you were mining Bitcoin. Right, and it it was it was it was just funny because you would be you'd have a real chance of, of solving uh, blocks and getting the reward yourself. And it, it was, I mean, you know, for, for a period I was, you know, it was happening quite a bit and then, and then it slowed down to a block a day, which sounds hilarious now because, you know, people were, people are spending millions of dollars to get fractions of blocks, you know, it wasn't um, worth keeping your computer on all day. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I kept running it anyways, just because, um, you know, to have another node out there. But but then I, you know, I, it was on a laptop and, you know, GPU miners weren't a thing yet. And and um, I basically just said, like, you know, the thing keeps, you know, getting shut off and I hate leaving the laptop overheating and, and all that stuff. So I, I shut it down when it was only getting a block a day. And... Um, you know, that was when things started to get pretty interesting, though, you know, and that was when, you know, that must have been 2010, I guess, or 20 or late 2009. And um, I don't know, man, I miss those days. Like it was it was I do too. everything was collaborative. Nobody was talking about like, price was important because it showed acceptance and growth. But but, you know, everybody was just focused on building this thing together and um, 
you know, I mean, that was probably the, I think those were the proudest. heydays. Yeah. I mean, I, I was about to say it's the proudest thing I've been a part of, like being part of the Marines was kind of a big deal too. Uh, you know, but it was just, it was, it was, it was amazing, man. I mean, we had open discussions. I mean, you remember we had these open discussions and like somebody would have a problem, they'd post it and a whole bunch of people for no financial motivation of their own would, would help out. And, and then now everybody's just guarding everything. No, it was definitely so collaborative. Um, I remember just being able to post on the forum, you know, cause we all, we all, the only place that we all spoke as a community was the Bitcoin talk forum. And this right. was before it was even called Bitcoin talk. It was, there's a forum.bitcoin.org and Bitcoin.org was set up by Satoshi. So this was just, and that was where Satoshi hung out too. And this was um, where we all would speak and you would meet someone on the forum and say, uh, Oh, Hey, I'm coming out to Thailand and then someone would invite you to stay at their, their place. But there was no, um, there was no scammers. There was maybe a little bit, but it was very camaraderie. Like you said, money does corrupt. And when money got involved in 2013, I would say, that's when things started changing, I feel like. I think for me, the, the inflection point and the, and the transition from a happy, wonderful, magical place to uh, the financial world was Coinbase. And and I don't, I don't mean that to, to knock on, on Coinbase or, or Brian or Fred or any of those guys. Um, I mean, it was a necessary step and, and Coinbase really, really helped to, uh, to get Bitcoin and crypto in general where it is today. And I think they, they deserve a lot of credit for that. Um, but you know, that was the, that was the indicator that I shouldn't say indicator. That was the, the point that. I lost a lot of love for it, which Why? is, I mean, which is ironic too, because that's when the price, you know, went through the roof. Uh, Coinbase the was time. the first like Silicon Valley based company. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I was Silicon Valley too, free Coinbase, but I mean, cause we moved from Chile to San Francisco. But... You were the real running this thing out of your garage. Company. Right. Yeah. Well, it was an apartment. We were, we were one step up. We had an apartment. That was no, I was in that, I was in that garage. That was the, uh, the oh. oh, wait, wait, wait. So we started an apartment and then we went to a bigger garage. So, so yeah. Tech, <laughs> tech, <laughs> so yeah, we, um, I, I think it's an upgrade just because it was so much larger, but I um, love that. I love that, that warehouse. So here, here we are. And, uh, it's, it's in the now that a neighborhood is really expensive. It kind of still was, but this was a warehouse, and it was basically, from what I remember, the the first floor of the warehouse was a was a huge warehouse. It was a garage, you know, big garage doors opened up. But what you did was you went and you bought all old kitchen equipment from a restaurant. So when people say, "Oh, my kitchen is restaurant grade," your kitchen was actually a restaurant kitchen. Um, and then you had like a car, two cars, and then in between the cars there was a couch where everyone would hang out and smoke weed. And then the the shower was basically a hose that you kind of just had hang off of a ledge. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty good description. Um, you I know, loved hanging out there every I, day. I loved it. That's probably that's yeah, it's probably one of my favorite places that I've lived. And um, you know, I. I'd always wanted to live in a warehouse and uh, 
And I didn't, I got it out of necessity though. I mean, I was, I was broke as all hell. I was in San Francisco unemployed, um, you know, and, uh, and I, I didn't know how expensive, I just moved to San Francisco in 2011. So I didn't know how expensive it is. And, um, and by Why today's standards, that was cheap. Sorry. Why did you move to San Francisco? Uh, for, for Bitcoin, for, for trade hill. And you had just finished a tour in the Marines. Um, I was in the Marines from 99 to, uh, to 05. Yeah. So, and then I, I went over, I was in Afghanistan as a civilian on and off, uh, 05, six, seven, eight. So, um, I think I came back for the last time. I mean, it was 07. Yeah. I came back Halloween of 08, I think is when I came back from Afghanistan for the last time. Why did you keep going back? Um, I was, I think I was searching for something. I, um, I actually, to be honest, I actually enjoyed it for the most part. Um, you know, you, there's, there's something, um, I mean, it's exciting and you feel alive and you feel like you have a purpose. And, and I think if I had found Bitcoin first, I think Bitcoin gave me a big purpose. If I found that I, I wouldn't have felt that need to, you know, what the hell am I going to do with my life? You know, I mean, and I think, um, you know, Oh five, I was 23 when I went over there and, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, getting rocketed and, and mortared and shot at and car bombs and, and that kind of stuff kind of puts things in perspective and, and you really get to, I met a lot of the locals. I used to speak Dari pretty well, which is a dialect of Farsi and, you know, language in Afghanistan. I mean, I haven't used it in over 10 years, so it's, you know, I could, say hi bathroom and goodbye now but um you know and i i met a lot of really interesting and impressive people and i saw i saw a lot of people that really had nothing and focused on the good parts of the nothing they had um you know i i knew a guy that had um he had i don't know three wives and let's say four children might have been five and um, the Russians killed the three wives and, and three of the four kids. And um, I knew the remaining kid. And then he, and then he got a, he started a new family and had another wife or two um, and a few more kids. And, um, and then the Russians killed all of them and uh, burned his feet, you know, torturing him and, you know, and the Taliban shot him cause he shaved his beard. And, and um, if you met the guy, you'd have no idea other than the scars and, you know, he was pretty stoic, but, you know, he, you know, he, he'd say, you know, how are you feeling? And he'd say, I'm, I'm really happy uh, to uh, be able to spend time with my son. And, you know, cause he had his first son, you know, and, um, you know, hopefully we can kill some Taliban together. And, uh, and I'm like, Holy shit. Like, you know, let me go back to the United States where people are like, you know, Facebook's down for an hour and, and, and people are just losing it, you know? And, um, you know, and this guy's got like a you know net worth of, you know, 50 bucks and he's like, you know, sharing his tea with me. And, and he's just like, I'm like, man, you, you still got a, a good attitude and you're like focusing on the important things in life when your life by, pretty much everybody's standard is, is terrible. And you're, 
you're just happy to, you know, make five bucks a day so you can get a, some long underwear for your son. So he's not cold at night, you know, and, and spend time with him and kick a soccer ball around. I don't know. It really changed my perspective. And I don't know. I also, I've never, you know, had a normal life, you know, Marines, firefighter, uh, you know, civilian contracting over in Afghanistan, Bitcoin, um, you know, and a few other things here and there. Um, I mean, I, I think it kind of goes without saying I like interesting things that are exciting. Um, being stuck in a cubicle is pretty much my worst fear. You're psychologically unemployable. <laughs> I mean, it depends what you want me to do, but yeah, in general, yeah, that's a, I'm definitely uh office unemployable. Was there a large gap between coming back from your last tour to when you, or going, yeah, sorry, sorry, going back as a civilian and then going into Bitcoin? Um, not terribly long. I, um, you know, a good, um, eh, year and a half, maybe I, um, I moved back to the United States and then, um, I met a girl and she was pretty awesome. And we went on two dates and then she said, I'm moving home to Chile. Um, if you want to see me again, you got to come visit. So we just kept talking and then, and then I bought a, I bought a ticket down and I'm like, you know, um, she's awesome. And if it, if it works out cool, if not, I'm just going to have a vacation. So then I moved to Chile and that's how, um, you know, that's why everything, you know, with Trejo started with Chile. I was already down there. So what was it like living in Chile for the first time? Did you speak any Spanish? Um, I grew up in a city that was, you know, I don't know, a third, 50% Mexicans or whatever. So I was always around Spanish. And, um, you know, one of my biggest regrets was we kind of tried to not speak Spanish. We intentionally avoided it growing up because there was this conflict and it wasn't like a, a racist, you know, conflict. It was just like kind of a rivalry type thing, you know, you know, you're the Mexicans, we're the white kids. And and we had like three Asians and we had one Jew, Charlie. Uh, yeah. More terribly represented. That was me. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I didn't. And, um, and I wish I had, I mean, I, I mean, I took one semester of high school Spanish, but anybody that's done that in a school, that's not impressive, sure. um, you know, <laughs> knows what that's good for. And, you know, my high school didn't, we weren't, you know, we, we didn't have a lot of money. I mean, we had buckets in the hallway uh, because the roof was leaking and they just put buckets in the hallway and changed them out instead of fixing the roof. Really? Yeah. Um, and I had, I had a couple of great teachers, but. Um, you know, those teachers were in it to actually be teaching and not for anything else. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And um you know, they were the ones I liked, you know, and yeah, I don't know why you would get into teaching if you're not actually for it. And as soon as you actually start teaching, if you, you know, and you realize you don't like it, I don't know why you would stay. I mean, the money's not there and, you know, it's something that you have to be, you know, passionate about and really care. I mean, you'd leave, you know, but um, I had some great teachers. I actually graduated um, dead last in my class as far as GPA goes. So you were an honor student. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, and look where you are now. It worked out. I, um, 
I mean, I, I grew up in a small town, though, a small school. Graduating class is 128. In my college, all the in my in my high school, all the kids who went to like Harvard, Yale, and all the Ivy League schools, they're either like hate their lives, they're on drugs, or they're working in some cubicle somewhere. And the our in our in our high school, the the class of 405 was the the, the 30 of us were like the the lowest performing kids, you know, and um, all of us ended up being super controversial, successful, you know, one, one kid who was my good friend, he was literally like you, he, he graduated last in his class. And by 21, 22, he sold his company to, um, the largest Japanese e-commerce company in the world. Um, and it just, that's just how it is. Oh yeah. You know, and the thing is like, I, I really, really liked to read when I was a kid. So, um, you know, unfortunately this was before the internet was really a thing. Um, you know, we're talking nineties. So I basically, I went to the library and got books and I, I spent a lot of time reading and, you know, I mean, had I, you know, studied instead, I'm sure I would have done fine. I'm not, not an idiot, but I, um, I didn't apply myself and I just felt like school was kind of a complete waste of time. You know, you'd go to class for an hour and you'd say, like, what did I really learn? You know? So, um, so I just spent a lot of time reading and hanging out with friends and drinking beer. You um, um, you told me a story once of when you were in the Marines in Afghanistan, how you were you had to paint a cafeteria. <laughs> so I wasn't actually in the Marines at the time. I was after the Marines, um, and uh, and we um, yeah we we built a new cafeteria and. Um, they ordered paint and we were, we were in a, in a small camp in a, in a city called Gardez, which is um, Eastern Afghanistan. It's towards the, towards the Pakistan border. So this was probably 05, 06. And, um, you know, it was, you know, it was a pretty hot area. I mean, we, you know, like the day I got there, we got attacked twice and I was like, Oh shit, this is how it's going to be. Oh, you weren't um, talking about the weather. Um, actually, the weather was was pretty pleasant in the summer there. We were at 8,000 feet. So, um, you know, I think the hottest I saw it get was probably like maybe 90s um, compared to Kandahar, which I saw it hit like 125 or something. And, and uh, yeah, I, I was in Kandahar once, which I, I don't like that city at all. It smells absolutely terrible. There's a, they built a giant... Uh, shit pond for for all the human waste and everything and and um the wind blows it um right into the everywhere and uh it's like 125 degrees and just seems like smells like steamy shit you know it's like somebody's walking in in front of you with a with a dog turd and a hair dryer blown in your face um so you know yeah i mean you, you get the temperatures you get used to over there you know it was like 125 or whatever when i was in Kandahar and I jumped a, a flight up to to Kabul and I was um, I was sitting in the shade and I'm like, man, it's kind of chilly. I'm going to go get like a sweatshirt or something. And I looked and it was 90 and I was just like, oh, man, I'm, I'm getting acclimatized. But uh, but yeah, Gardez, um, I saw it hit negative 40 in the winter. So that's that's the miserable part about Gardez. Um, and you know, if something happens like a generator breaks and you got to fix it, and it's negative 40. Um, you don't really have a choice. You know, you just got to get out there and do it. 
Um, so, you know, that was pretty, you know, pretty, pretty miserable from a, a, a climate perspective, but there was only a few of us and I made a lot of really good friends, um, learned a lot, grew a lot. What were you doing there? Um, so, I mean, you know, technically I came over as a mechanic, um, but I didn't really do a lot of mechanic stuff. Um, I basically was working with the Afghan national army. Um, I spent most of my, most of my days with them. Um, I managed, uh, a motor pool. So like, um, vehicle maintenance, I coordinated with them, uh, oversaw construction for a lot of different stuff. Um, like we were building guard towers and, and, um, I was working with them and, you know, I was the only American that could speak the language well enough to, to really do anything with them. So, so you have to build this cafeteria. Yeah. So we were building, um, basically a cafeteria and a kitchen, you know, and at, at this point there was, you know, I don't know, let's just say 400 people on the base. Um, you know, when we got started, there was probably you know 50 or whatever. Um, and, uh, we, we built it. And, you know, one thing that I thought was funny was we, originally we were building the floors out of plywood just because it's, it's easy. And, you know, who gives a shit if you have a plywood floor. And, um, I did the math and it was cheaper to use marble because, uh, Afghanistan had plenty of rock, but not very many trees and plywood is incredibly expensive and they don't use it over there. So it'll have to be imported and trucked around and the marble, they just walk into the market and buy a foot by, you know, one by one, you know, square foot of, of marble tile, uh, beautiful stuff for like 50 cents. So, or less. So, so we ended up making a, a lot of it out of marble, which is hilarious. But um, what happened was we, we finished building it and all the buildings were painted this, you know, tan, you know, light brown color. And uh, the only thing that wasn't painted was the, was the chow hall. And we ordered paint, but um, the supply system was pretty terrible being in the middle of nowhere. And uh, the paint finally arrived and it was white and uh, instead of brown. And we looked at this and we were like, we can't, you can't paint the, the chow hall white. That's basically putting a bullseye on it. You know, if, cause if they're going to, you know, like if we get, if we get a mortar attack, um, the chow hall is pretty much your number one target because if you hit the chow hall during, during lunch or dinner or breakfast, um, you know, it could have, you know, 100, 200, you know, people in it, maybe more. And, uh, and then, and then most of the people that aren't in it are, are right outside of it lined up to go in it. You know what I mean? So, so it's pretty much the number one target on the, on the base. So you'd prefer for it to, to blend in. You know, if they've got a spotter and they, you know, bracket you with mortars and start walking them in, uh, you know, you really don't want them to know which one is the chow hall, you know. So um, basically, uh, we were all standing around. And, and just prior to that, we had we had seized um, off the top of my head uh, four metric tons of hash, which is about eighty eight hundred pounds um, in freedom units. And uh, we we basically dumped, you know, 40 gallons of diesel on it and lit it on fire and it burned for about three days. And, um, you know, as, as, as fate would have it, the wind shifted and blew it right through the camp for three days. So everybody was just pretty much just high as fuck. And Sounds um, like Coachella. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was the least efficient hot boxing in world history. Um, 8,800 pounds of hash. I mean, in just, Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. Just truck after truck and just dumping it in the fire. 
Um, so, you know, everybody was just, just, just high as hell. And, um, we're sitting there with this white paint in this unpainted building and we can't leave it unpainted either. And, uh, and, uh, and they're like, what are we going to do? And I, and, you know, everybody's scratching their heads for a few minutes. And, and I said, uh, we just got a bunch of Hershey syrup. Let's just mix that in with the white paint. And, uh, <laughs> Kenna, you're a fucking idiot. And, uh, and I said, let's just try it. And, and they wouldn't try it. So I just took a, a cup and I mixed the syrup together and I said, Hey, does this look like the other buildings? And Kenna, you're, you're a goddamn genius. And, <laughs> um, so we sat around and we squeezed, we just squeezed some Hershey syrup into it. And, uh, and we started spraying the building and then we had this chocolate smell just all over the camp, you know, thousand gallons of paint being, you know, sprayed mixed with chocolate. And uh, everybody was just had the munchies walking around with, you know, automatic weapons and, you know, those soldiers and, you know, full battle rattle. And, and, uh, you know, one guy was like, you know, even he, he's like, can I taste it? I said, that's a bad idea. And he did it, <laughs> did it anyways. And I'm like, dude, it's still like, 90% paint, like, what are you expecting? You know, you puked. And, um, yeah, so that's like the happy, fun, you know, fun stuff. You know, you can have, um, you know, you can have. Um, Try to smile at least once a day, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, there's obviously I've got, you know, plenty of um, unhappy memories too, but, you know, and I. Did I, you live with the Afghan army? Um. So. We had a we had a separation, um, you know, probably a couple hundred meters. We were we were inside the same out, outer perimeter, and then um, and then we had our own inner perimeter. So they handled they handled exterior security, and which allowed them access to all their areas. And then um, we had our own inner perimeter that we handled. But you know they would, you know they'd come over to our area. I'd go over to their area. Um, we had some interpreters, and, you know, when we finally got interpreters, which was nice because um, sign language is difficult. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it, it's just weird. I mean, ideally, you get American interpreters that you can trust, you know, because when there's, you know, three three people talking in front of you and you don't know what they're saying, and they're, you know, it's it's it sucks, um, you know, and you're like, you know, are they are they figured it, you know? figuring it out or are they like, you know, planning an ambush, you know? Um, but so some of the interpreters, the Afghan interpreters, the local interpreters, not the, uh, not the American Afghan interpreters, um, you know, lived on our inner perimeter and, um, you know, but for the most part, uh, they were separated by, you know, you know, about, I mean, from my, my room, I mean, I was only, you know, 50 feet from them, but sure. You know, but I, I like those guys for the most part. There's some really good dudes. You Why? Know? Um, just the right attitude. And, you know, I mean, there's 1% of Afghans are, are, are bad people that want to, you know, want to, you know, throw acid on girls for going to school. And the other 99% want to live their lives and take care of their family and just, you know, enjoy being alive. And, um, and they, they appreciate how fragile life is, I think, and they know loss better than, better than most. Um, and, you know, most of them are, you know, really pretty decent people. 
And um, I honestly feel like most of them had a lot better attitude than, than most people I know. And, um, you know, it's just that, you know, it's just that 1% that, you know, sure. is trying to kill you. Um, so, you so you come back to, to the United States and you meet this girl, you move to Chile, and then you learn about Bitcoin and you start Trade Hill. Do you think that Bitcoin in a way was the perfect segue from being in Afghanistan and living a crazy life? Um, and then you have to go back to the US and kind of transition into the civilian life. But then if you go into Bitcoin, it's kind of not really civilian life anymore. It's It allows you to continue doing something different. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a great transition. I mean, to be honest, like Bitcoin was a little more stressful. Like I really, I, well, I mean, different kind of stress, <laughs> you know, I, um, I handle stress pretty well and I handle, you know, risk and all that stuff pretty well. Um, I know but, a rocket's falling on me, but my bank account just got shut down. God damn it. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, yeah. When I, yeah, not the last time I was leaving Afghanistan, but I was, I was leaving one time and, uh, my buddy, uh, Phil, we were, we were driving. I mean, we were, neither one of us was a driver, but, and, um, we were the a brand new guy had been there like two weeks and we got hit with a suicide bomber. And, um, it was, and like Phil and I were just like, all right, let's keep rolling, you know? And this guy was just losing it, you know? And I don't, I think you just get, get used to it. And I think you just stop really caring which is not good necessarily but it's like a survival mechanism and um so i mean like with bitcoin though it was it was different it was you, you know i had i felt like there was a lot of people depending on me which i mean afghanistan there's people depending on you but you know if you know for you know i had a mortar land a few feet from me and it, and it didn't blow up and it would have killed me and um you know had it had it blown up and killed me, you know, there would have been, you know, some sad people and, and I would have been dead and, and everything, but that kind of would have been for me, that would have been the end of it. Um, you know, whereas with, and you, and also you, you don't, you probably don't see it coming, you know, and, and there's nothing you can do about it and it's, you know, bad luck and everything. But with Bitcoin, I felt like there was, a lot on my shoulders, um, you know, and especially at the time when I, I thought we were going to completely displace Mount Gox because, you know, Mount Gox would take three weeks to get back to you on an email. Uh, Gox still owes me money personally, you know, and, uh, and, uh, they were just generally terrible. You know, you'd take a week to get your funds out, which is like a horrible, horrible sign, which is everybody. Even, even in 2011. Oh yeah, dude, they would take, they, yeah, you would, you put you you send your money in and they'd credit you, you know, relatively quick. But then when you wanted to pull your money out, there'd be like a, you know, inexplicable delay of like a week sometimes. Why was it what people were willing to trust Mount Gox for the next two years? Even three? <sighs> Man, it was, it, they shouldn't have. And, and most people didn't, you had, you had people that, you know, they, they trusted it enough to make money and arbitrage it. But, but not then, enough to keep long-term money on it. Yeah. And then you had other people that were just naive um, or, or didn't know the whole story. You know, there's a lot of people that, 
you know, didn't try to, you know, make withdrawals and get delayed. You know, I'm sure there's people that hadn't made withdrawals in years. They just let it sit there and trade it back and forth or whatever. And, um, you know, like when, when Mt. Gox crashed in, uh, let's say July of 2011, maybe August, can't remember exactly. Um, you know, for me, that was like, I saw what kind of operation they were running. You knew that was, that was happening. We had another guest on the show and he, he talked about how Mount Gox was crashing and he was at Mark's house baking apple pies. Yeah. I, um, you know, and I, I may know your guest. I obviously I'm assuming you're withholding the name right here for suspense, but, um, Tune in next time. All right. We'll do. <laughs> I don't listen to podcasts, but I'm going to make an exception for yours. This will be the, like the third podcast I've listened to. So thank you. Yeah. I, um, so yeah, I knew somebody that was like, you know, like we went, we were going nuts when Gox crashed. I mean, we were trying to do everything to help. We got on the phone with him, you know, we're like, what can we do? You know? And it, it wasn't from, you know, now if a, if a competitor crashed, every exchange would be like, okay, how do we pounce on them? You know, like let's, you know, let's do, you know, rebates for everybody that comes from Gox or whatever. We were just like, well, let's not let Bitcoin die. I mean, we shouldn't be the only exchange in the world. And, and we were the only exchange in the world for like, I don't know what, two weeks, 16, 17 days, something like that. Um, and, and Mark Carpellis, you know, CEO of Mount Gox, um, a friend of mine was over there and I think it crashed on a Friday and, um, he said, Hey, let's, let's get this fixed. And, you know, according to him, you know, he said, Mark said, ah, let's take a look at it on Monday. And I'm like, I'm like, wait, wait, you're, you're, you're running the, the largest exchange in an emerging financial market that can completely change the world. And you have millions of people's money and you're not going to work on it because it's a weekend. And I'm like, and that just kind of, you know, said everything for me. As it's far not just as, his company at stake. It's the whole industry's at stake. Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it, it was absolutely insane. I mean, I don't, I, I, I couldn't fathom it. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there and, you know, another time that he was collapsing, I, I looked at his Facebook or Instagram or something and he was like, you know, I mean, I, or Twitter or whatever it was, some social media. And I get, I get an update that's like, wow, the moon is really big tonight or something like that. Mark Carpellis. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I remember that. The entire world is talking about. Moon. It was a pretty big moon though. You know, and it, it, it was, it was a big <laughs> moon. I'll give him a little bit of credit. It was, a, it was a huge moon, but you know, like really like, you know, maybe like, okay, like, you know, go out smoke a cigarette, look at the moon but like get back to work, you know, and, you know, don't, and, and, and you know what, even, even if he was like, you know, sending his friends pictures of the moon and being like, oh, the moon's amazing. Just from a business perspective, make it look like the only thing you're focused on is the fact that everyone that you owe money to is freaking out and you're not tweeting about that. You're tweeting about the moon and your People cat started camping out outside of his house and office for weeks. Yeah. No, I mean, it, I, th I think, um, I mean, there's no question he was, you know, didn't expect this, was over his head, didn't, he never, didn't even, to me, didn't even seem to be passionate about Bitcoin, you know, and I mean, he owes me a little bit of money, but, you he know. He still isn't. I spoke to him last week and I said, 
you know, so what are you up to? I touch base with him every so often because he's he only got a year in prison. He served it. And I said, uh, what are you up to? And he's like, well, I'm building out my decentralized file storage company. No, it's, it's not even decentralized. It's just a file storage company. And and I said, OK, like what what makes it different? And he said, oh, it accepts large files really fast. And you can send them out to different people. I said, oh, like like Dropbox. Um or like box or like the million, million other yeah. Yeah, the million other ones that are doing the same thing or not to mention just using BitTorrent. you know I mean, it seems like, like he builds stuff for himself and then he lets other people use it yeah i mean i i think i think more than a more than a bad person i think he's he just has like a his it's his attitude is what causes That's the difficult that's the most difficult thing because we know him. We worked with him very personally. Um, so it's hard for us to hate him because I don't think through anything he ever had any ill intentions. No, but he, he's he, just stupidly oblivious to, to the world around him. Exactly. And, you know, he just didn't care, you know, and, and I don't, I don't know how you can. It was a half a billion dollars. Yeah, and if he had, if he had been around a little longer, it would have been more like lots of billions. I mean, you know, like if if it would have crashed, you know, a couple of years later, if you would have gone that far, it would have been, you know, maybe fifty billion. Um, I mean, because it crashed around two hundred bucks, didn't it? I mean, for it the did. final time. Yeah. Yes. So I mean, if if it would have crashed at at, at twenty thousand, I mean, that'd be you know a hundred times that volume. It was almost a good thing it happened when it did, not not now. Yeah, the biggest problem was it should have he should have shut down and But that's an interesting point. It's an interesting point what you said. You said that, you know, in those days, and I remember it specifically, in those days, um, when when an exchange would fail, we'd all kind of gather around and say, How can we help you um keep this thing alive? And now you said you're right. What if something happens, if an exchange fails or whatever happens, everyone's just pouncing. Um do you remember that time? Do you remember that time when it was me, you, um, Tony Gallippi from BitPay and Roger Veer um, in California, and we went to meet Brian Armstrong, the founder and CEO of Coinbase for the first time? That was the exact moment that my spirit broke. <laughs> do you remember Do you remember what happened? Uh, I remember that. I mean, well, Brian's a billionaire now. Do we throw him under the bus? <laughs> no, it's. I don't think we throw him under the bus. Um, actually, I don't think he's said a word to me since that day. But from what I remember, um, he invited us over to a barbecue. And at that time, he was just working for Airbnb. He didn't say anything to us about doing anything Bitcoin related. It was just some guy, <clears throat> some guy inviting us over to his Silicon Valley house. He works for Airbnb pretty high up. And... He invites all these Bitcoin guys over and pretty much at that point, me, you, Tony and Roger, we were the big four. We owned and ran the largest Bitcoin company. We were the Bitcoin industry back then. Um, and Gox. And Gox. But I between and but Roger had owned a piece of Gox. So Roger kind of represents right. Gox at that point. Right. So it was the four of us. We go to this barbecue because, of course, like free food, right? Yeah. So we go to. Oh, this I was barbecue. broke as hell, man. Yeah. I was living in a warehouse. I was and eating... Roger brought all of his Korean girlfriends with him and yeah. everything. Did you, did you see my giant bags of rice and beans in the warehouse? I remember, yeah. Like anybody that doesn't believe I was broke as shit, like 
I, I, I've had like Costco size bags of rice and beans. I was eating rice, beans and grilled cheese. You know, I was, I was like, that was like, that was rough, but it was also, so we, go to his, we go to his house. Um, and there's all these people there and it's a party. And, um, he starts asking us a lot of questions about Bitcoin and about like how our companies work. And we were thinking this guy, you know, works for Airbnb, maybe Airbnb will accept Bitcoin. Maybe he'll introduce us to some investors, you know, cause we were all struggling to make money to, to, to grow their companies. And, and he took all of, and he's writing a lot of copious notes and, I remember at the end of that meeting, he looked at us dead in the eyes. He's like, well, I'm starting a Bitcoin company. I'm going to compete with all of you. and You're all going to go down. Yeah. And he was right. Uh, well, Tony's still and Roger is still there. But, um, you know, and I knew he was starting a Bitcoin company going in. And I thought you guys did, too. No. Why don't you tell us? Because I thought he told you the same thing he told me. And I mean, maybe you don't remember. I mean, like I, I, I was like. I wasn't unhelpful, but I mean, I was just kind of, you know, general and, and everything else, you know, I don't mind helping people out. And I was still, I was still at that point where, um, that was the turning point for, and I don't, I don't blame Brian. I don't hold me ill will against Brian. I don't blame Coinbase. I don't blame his investors. Of course not. Coinbase Um, did a lot of work to further this industry. We have, we owe them a lot of credit, but why was that a turning point for you? Because that's the moment it went from a collaborative project that everybody wanted to see succeed because they thought it was something amazing to we can make a lot of money with this. And it went from it went from collaborative to hyper competitive. And that was the turning point. And are, yeah, go ahead. Are you a competitive person by nature? Um, yeah, I'm a highly competitive person by nature, but I'm also um you know, competitive when I need to be here for fun. If it, if it benefits, you know, me and, and everyone else, you know, to not be competitive, um, you know, then I'm not. And also, you know, I think competition's good. You know, I think, you know, if, if I would have been content with Mount Gox, um, you know, and not want to compete with them, you know, then there wouldn't have been any, any pressure on them, which I mean, the pressure didn't really do any good, but you know, it, uh, I, I definitely, you know, I mean, I had, you know, 30,000 people, you know, were using my site back then, uh, back when that was an insane amount of, you know, people using Bitcoin. We were yes, trading over a million dollars, you know, $2 million a month or whatever, $3 million a month, which was like an insane amount of money back then. And now it's like a, you know, medium, small trade. But, um, you know, and I, I think, you know, if that, you know, you need to compete to provide better services and competition grew the market. What happened was, um, you know, when Coinbase began, um, it went from, hey, I have a problem or, hey, let's build this together to, well, I'm not going to tell you what I'm working on. I went into that that barbecue knowing that he was, you know, launching change. I mean, he was in Y Combinator at the time, if I remember right. So, so I mean, there was no, no question what he was doing. Um, and, you know, but he. Made- he went in direct competition with me. I, yeah. I didn't think that that's what what he was. I think he was. I thought he was looking more into doing a point of sale, like bit similar to BitPay. But um, he went into direct competition with what BitInstant was doing. Yeah, exactly the same thing. I know, and you know, I had um, I had Ryan Singer, who was my partner at the time, with me, and you know, beforehand, I briefed him. I'm like, you know, there's absolutely no reason to to not be friendly and and you know, discuss stuff, but let's not give any like, you know, trade secrets and, you know, let's not be overly, 
you know, and also, you know, disclose too much. And also I was like, let's just kind of, you know, play it out. You know, I'm, you know, I like to people to, you know, people that I'm helping out with and, and doing these kind of things. I like to feel like I'm either I'm getting something or the community is going to get something. And, you know, after about, you know, 20 minutes, I realized that all he was doing was listening, you know, contributing nothing, telling nothing about what he was doing and just intently listening to everything. And, um, and I'm like, man, this guy's like, you know, I'm, and I don't even, I, I'm pretty neutral on it. I don't like it, but I'm not, I'm like, that's okay. It's, it's, you're trying to build a business. I don't think you're a piece of shit because you're, you know, trying to learn as much as possible from people that you invite over for a barbecue, you know? And I mean, I mean, you know, if you didn't know why you were there, then, then that's to me, that's a little different. That's news to me. And I, I don't doubt it at all, but, um, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, I was already in California and that community. So maybe that's why I had a little more insight, but that, that may have been the first time I ever traveled to Silicon Valley. Oh yeah. I didn't even know what that was. I came from, <laughs> from Brooklyn. I built Bit instant, uh, a little bit after you started trade Hill 2011 around June. And, um, I didn't even know what the term VC. I thought VC meant Viet Cong. Like I didn't know. What <laughs> oh Cong man, was. I got you. I got you beat, man. I mean, so I, I, I've like always been involved in finance, but never like you know banking, and and I never, I never had a lot of money. You know, the most money I, had, you know, I think I had like eighty, eighty, maybe eighty thousand in cash when I came back from Afghanistan, um, which is like the most money I'd ever had in my life. It's um, a lot of money. Well, dude, it was a ton of money to me. I mean, before that, the most I'd ever had was 13000 in cash. And I'm not talking, I'm talking about like not owning a house, not owning a car that's paid off. I'm talking about like my net worth was like, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe 13000 you know, um, you know, so I mean, I, you know, I hadn't even broken $100,000 net worth when I was, you know, doing this. So like, for me, this was, you know, a lot of money. And um, I was on the phone with, uh, and I was on the phone with a bank um probably bank of america or hsbc and when we launched trade hill and i gotta apologize we're kind of wandering all over the place on this we'll get back to coinbase and brian in a second and uh when we launched uh trade hill i was on the phone with hsbc and um you know i expected money to just kind of trickle in and uh we launched and on after a few hours after launch we had 1400 people signed up and i was like oh shit this is this is actually happening. Um, and, you know, by the end of the week, we had over a million dollars, which is now just kind of like a, you know, a trade in Bitcoin, you know. But at that time, that represented like a good portion of the monthly total volume of all Bitcoin being traded. Right. And um, yeah, I mean, like a, like a really good chunk. And um, anyways, so I was on the phone. HSBC called me and uh, and they're like. Yeah, we want to know about your, uh, you know, what can you tell us about your AML policy? And I was just like, shit, what's AML? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I literally Googled uh, AML while being asked about it over the phone by the bank. And, you know, because I'd never been in a, a position to, you know, I went from, you know, never having an actual finance job to, to, all of a sudden, a large financial company. Yeah, in like a week, and um, and you know, I mean, now, I mean, you know, now I'm an expert on it, you know, allegedly, and and I, uh, 
you know, now I know all about that stuff and I can, you know, sit in a room full of lawyers and CEOs and, and discuss the details and, you know, in and out and how it varies by state and blah, blah, blah. But uh, at the time I didn't know anything. So I, I literally, I literally just typed AML, AML, AML banking into, into Google and it popped up and it said anti-money laundering and policies and blah, blah, blah. And I said like, Oh yeah, it'd be better if you talk with the attorney about that. We've got, you know, you know, we're, uh, you know, he'd be the one to speak to. Um, I'm more focused on the, the client and the tech. And he said, okay, well, get back to me with it. And then I, and then I had an attorney write up an AML policy. So and you were the CEO, you, you clean the toilets, you, uh, you were the customer service, you were the tech guy, you did everything. Yeah. Yeah. Everything, man. I mean, and, and I was just so naive. Like I, I'm, you know, having not, been in that business you're like well why do we need to have somebody's id if they're just giving us money and then you're like find out that's actually a really big deal so you know making that transition from hey open up an account give us money we'll give you bitcoin to um okay send me a notarized id and if we don't like it we're going to reject it and you've got to do that to get your money out and it's it's not like i wanted to do all the additional work and privacy violation and all this stuff. It's, uh, it was more like not wanting to go to prison. And, um, yeah, you don't want to go to prison. Yeah. heard it sucks. I got a friend that did <laughs> a does. couple of years there. <laughs> I hope he's a nice guy. Um, yeah, yeah. Great dude. Great dude. I, uh, yeah. So how long did you, did you run trade hill for? Um, so ran it from, um, June 8th, 2011, I think is, I think is the date, which I think coincidentally is the date that uh, Senator Schumer called uh, Bitcoin uh, drugs, money laundering. And it's like, Hey, on that note, I'm going to start a company. <laughs> yeah. But that, you know, I, you know, Schumer, if you're listening to this, um, you know, a big thank you. Um, <laughs> I mean, and now he's not against it or anything. Um, you know, big thank you just because. Uh, what happens with a lot of people once you're educated in yeah. something, then. But I mean, he, Schumer's, I mean, you know, there's, there's some real key people in, in, in Bitcoin history. Like, you know, you know, recently Roger Ver has been really getting, you know, you know, shit on by the community and, and almost everyone. Uh, but I think to me, he's one of the most important people in the history of Bitcoin. And I think there, without him, um, you know, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be where it is and it wouldn't have got there as quickly. I mean, the, the grassroots effort and the personal effort. I mean, I remember we'd get launched at a Korean restaurant. He'd spend half an hour explaining Bitcoin to a. To I know, a and it pissed me off so much. <laughs> I just want to eat my food. I'll test it. Yeah, like, I, you know, it's. Listen, I, some of the most successful and important people uh, and pivotal people in the Bitcoin space and now in the crypto space are also the most controversial. Um, my, my relationship with Roger is a complete love, hate, love relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think there's a lot of people that missed out on early Roger when there wasn't any controversy to be that had. That was the best Roger. You know, I, I still like Roger a lot. I don't, I, still, uh, dude, I, I just sent him a message like five minutes ago. Oh, cool. Cool. You know, and, um, I think the one thing that's unique about Roger is, um, you know, obviously he's made a little bit of money on this. But um, I think he is as passionate as he was when I met him in 2011. And I don't think Roger 
has changed tremendously. I think that the industry has changed. And I think that the division between, you know, things like Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Core and everything has has forced people to take sides. And um, there were never sides back then. Well, we had, Rogers living we had in a sides. 2011 Bitcoin. We had sides. We had we had Bitcoin versus everyone else. And um, it was pretty easy to, to all rally together when the whole world's against you. I miss that. I, those are some of the best days and I, and I, I truly miss that. And, you know, I would hope that everybody could experience, you know, something. I hope with this podcast, I can remind people that that's why the original people that started this space and Bitcoin and crypto and Ethereum and all your altcoins and everything that you do wouldn't be here today without this select group of of guys and girls from 2009 to 2012 without those people the space wouldn't be here today and it's very important to remember that we were all brothers and sisters back then we um i think we were just brothers there there (laughs) there weren't very many females i don't know if we had any no sisters page page came along in like 2013 or something connie anyway, was there too yeah 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 connie wasn't was- like active until you know in 13 or something like that yeah i i remember when we're like, like <laughs> oh no a female i went to a meetup and there was like it was like you know i mean it was a little bit later on but like oh, there's a woman here you know <laughs> it was like um cool um but it was us versus them it was us versus them it wasn't it wasn't like BSV, BCT, BTC, BHV, BC. Or companies against each all, other. Yeah, all this crap. And it just it was Bitcoin versus the world. And that was the best part. Oh, it was great, man. It was great. I, um, you know, like, I, I think, you know, one of my favorite moments in Bitcoin, and I don't know if you, you remember this, uh, it might have been right before you got on, um, in the, in the, Bitcoin forums on, you know, Bitcoin.org, um, there was a, uh, everybody was using pseudonyms. And then um, this was, prob- yeah. <laughs> and then there was a, there was, this was probably something like uh, early 2011 or, or maybe like spring 2011. I don't remember for sure. And um, somebody started this push to, to everybody to use their own names. They're like, you know, hey, you know, we're trying to make this a real thing. We're not going to get any credibility if like, you know, you know, you're like, you call to... yourself goat. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and so then a whole bunch of us, you know, me included, um, switched our forum names to our real names. And um, it was it was uh, it was pretty funny. It was like a really, really cool movement. Like it was just like a maturity step. And I mean, of course, people kept, you know, forum names, you know, but People that were trying to actually do things like Tony and and I don't know if you remember Minnie. He was a great dude and sure. still a great dude. I just haven't talked to him for a little bit. And um, you know Tony, myself, uh, you know a few others that were you know kind of key people. Um, obviously, Magical Tux didn't didn't change his name, but um, everyone knew who he was. Well, and he probably didn't even know about the movement because he was so oblivious. You um, know, some of these people that you mentioned though. Um... And some of the people out of their own privacy, I won't say their names or even their handles, they've they've kind of I was a little surprised they've they've kind of declined to come on the show because I feel like to some extent they feel the same way you feel. And and 
you know, I have to tell you, to be honest with you, when, when, when you and I, uh, we started talking a few months ago more frequently, um, when you moved to Northern Alaska, um, that I, you said to me something very interesting and it made me question my own life at this moment. And what you said to me was, how are you not burnt out of crypto? Um, and I, and I immediately responded to you and I said, Oh, I love crypto. I love Bitcoin. I love, but then like the next few nights, I literally lay awake at night. Um, and I couldn't sleep and I thought about it and I feel like, I feel like, um, I did get a little burnout of, of crypto for, you know, for, for, for t- at times, um, especially going through a lot of really, uh, stressful points in my life that follow the bull and bear markets. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm at the height of my life in 2013 and I'm, I got some money and I'm living king of the world. And then I get arrested and I spent 18 months in federal prison. And then I get out and I'm uh, restarting my life again. And I make a bunch of money again. And then Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss sue me for 5,000 Bitcoin. And I got to spend a few hundred thousand dollars defending myself for something that's kind of crazy. And then they just, boom, the case is over, you know, and then now I'm back again and I'm going through a bull market and it's just all these bull and bear markets that my personal life goes through. And it's, it's, it's a, it's, it burns me out. You know, I don't think I'd be as burned out and frustrated if it was, I could have handled 50 years of, of 2010, 2011, Bitcoin, 2012, Bitcoin. Um, it's that, you know, it, now I feel like there's not as much to fight for. I think what you're fighting for isn't as as great as it was back then because for one, it's accomplished it already. It's it's shown proof of concept and everything like that, and it's just so fractured and everything. Um, but I will say this: I will say this. Um, and without this, that it would be, I would agree with you 100%. There is still fun, and there is still enjoyment, and there are still people that, as much jaded and as uh, frustrated as I get sometimes, there are people that I meet in the industry who are just so pure and excited about the space, um, just for what it can do and what it can bring. That their excitement makes me giddy. And without those people, I think I would, I may, I, I would, if without those people in my life, um, especially my my friends and my close family, but also people that I speak to on a regular basis that live in places like you know, Slovenia or Canada, South America, China every day without those people. Um, I would, I I don't know if I'd be in the industry anymore. No, I I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing, like if I was working with the right group of people, I think I could be excited about it or, or working on, you know, certain projects and stuff. I, you know, I think for me, like, you know, kind of, final straw was identity theft. You know, I mean, I just got my entire life turned upside down for, for six months and I got, you know, 300 emails, with the FBI, give or take. And, and I don't even know how many hours on the phone. And, and the conclusion was just like, sorry, you know, we, you know, they, they took over multiple bank accounts. They took over accounts. I didn't remember that I even had or remember setting up, you know, I'm like, Oh, I had a, a pot money account. I forgot about that. Oh, okay. Um, oh, I had, you know, this, you know, money brokers account or whatever, some account that had 50 Bitcoins in it that I forgot were there and they're gone now. Um, you know, 
it, that was kind of what, you know, really did it. And then I think, you know, one thing that, that really kills me is, is, uh, is like lawsuits and the cost of just doing business. Like I, and I, I'm not, I don't even mean crypto related, like, you know, a guy got, uh, burned on my barbecue at my house. Um, I was running my house out on Airbnb and, um, a guy got, you know, burned himself, but I don't think it was bad because he would refuse to provide medical reports. And if you have like, you know, substantial, substantial injuries, like why the hell wouldn't you be like, yeah, here's my hospital bill for $60,000 where they got all these skin grafts. Instead, it was like, I think he got, you know, and I don't, I don't know. I'm just assuming it was, I knew it was first degree, but I'm assuming it was pretty minor because he wouldn't produce any reports or any bills or anything um, in court. But, you know, he sued me for 2 million bucks and, and, you know, and I'm sure he just Googled who owned the house and he was just like, oh shit, payday. And, um, you know, and, and, and that kind of thing is kind of, you know, burned me out too. And, you know, the worst part is I have a perception of, of having, um, a lot more money than I do because, you know, had I held onto a bunch of Bitcoin, sold it when it was high, bought into ICOs and altcoins, I could easily be a billionaire a couple times over. But um, I never bought a single uh, altcoin and I only bought one ICO and that was, um, you know, recently. And, uh, you know, a friend of mine runs it and I bought it because I genuinely believe in it. Um, I avoided all the ICOs and all coins because I just thought they were kind of bullshit money grabs. And uh, in a lot of ways, I regret that because my, well, I guess whoever got my identity theft probably would have had more money to take. <laughs> when did this happen? <laughs> Which part? The identity theft. Uh, October 2017. Was it Bitcoin related? Um. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a Forbes article on it. No one wants my identity. <laughs> no, one, <laughs> no one wants my. Man, these guys, were, these guys were so good. I called up the bank and I'm like, Hey, you know, I get my account. I get my account unlocked and all this stuff. And, and then a half hour later I get an email and it's like, you know, it's like, Hey, we unlocked your account. Thanks for calling in and canceling your fraud request. And I'm like, no, no, like that wasn't me. Like, <laughs> You know, and they, they SIM swapped me and they, they took, I lost an email account or two or four. And then um, once you have your phone number and your email and, you know, they probably pulled up, you know, at that point, I'm sure they had copies of my ID, social security, you know. Um, and I got, I had, I had, uh, I had pretty bad identity theft a long time ago, um, you know, back in, oh, five ish oh six i'm trying to get my captain's license for boating oh nice and you need to get what's called the transportation workers identification card for maritime so it allows you to basically because a lot of our waters are uh off limit zones for for the recreational boater especially right. like around tampa around around like uh, key west around um anywhere like there's a major city that has water a lot of it's off limits especially where there's container ships cruise ships um, and so I wanted to get my captain's license because, you know, I just, it'd, it'd be fun to do some charter boating and things like that. Um, and I wanted to prove myself. So I go there to get, to get my, my TWIC, my transportation workers. And I got, I got declined and I'm pretty pissed off about that because, um, my crime wasn't any of the non-qualifying crimes. 
Um, it's like the quali- the non-qualifying crimes are like arson, terrorism, murder, rape, um, not money transmission. So I hired a lawyer and I'm appealing it. Nice. Good luck with that. I, I Hopefully you'll get it. I mean, the thing is, it's I wonder what their motivation is. You know, they're like, you know, unlawful. I think they just decline anyone with a record. And if you care enough to appeal it, then you'll get it. Yeah, I I knew a guy that, you know, had some domestic stuff that was kind of bullshit and got dismissed and, and he got denied. You know, it's it's it can happen. But yeah, so I had my completed SF 86, which is the background form. And then I had an SSBI, which is, you know, more completed. And, and then I had it with all my other identity documents, birth certificates, a security card and some other stuff copy of my driver's license. I had it all in a packet that I was going to hand to somebody. And um, and a guy jumped up onto my balcony. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. Guy jumped up on my balcony and it was sitting on top of my laptop and he grabbed it with my laptop and ran off. And, um, and you know, and uh, I was like, oh shit, this is, this is not good. This is like the absolute worst thing that could happen. And you know, he was probably crackhead and probably trashed it, but you know, that scared the hell out of me for, for a long time. It's like, um, you can't really get any worse than that without including, you know, passwords. I mean, this information, you know, family, mother's maiden name, you know, entire, you know, you know, known associates, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that, uh, that was my first identity theft. The second one hit me a lot harder. The second one, I lost like, I don't know, 99% of my net worth. So that, wow. Yeah, that was that one stung a little bit. Were you able to sue anyone or figure it out? Um, unfortunately, you can't sue people that you don't know who they are. So, didn't get anywhere on it. You know, um, it was. I mean, this. You know, people have got theories, but, but no. I mean, it was incredibly sophisticated. I mean, it was like seven minutes and I had, you know, 60 accounts compromised and, you know, like my BitPay account was rerouted to somewhere else, I think. And, and, uh, phone numbers taken over. And, and the only reason that I, I didn't, you know, lose the money I had in BitGo, um, which was, um, I mean, substantial, but not a huge amount, uh, was because I called Mike Belshi, who's the CTO, CEO at, at like midnight on his cell phone and was like, freeze my account immediately. Don't fucking open it unless you hear my voice, you know? And, and he did it. And they were like, I think they were already in the account. saved your finances. Oh no, it was, it was like 50 grand, dude. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like still, I mean, yeah, it's 50 grand, but I mean, you know, the amount I lost compared to that, you know, is, is not really like, you know, you're, I mean, I I wasn't, you know, homeless, but it it wasn't like a, you know, a good thing. So what are you, what are you working on now? Um, not a whole lot, really. Um, you know, I'm working on, so you have a brewery, you got a brewery in Columbia and, um, I love how you go from the Marines to Bitcoin and now you're doing a brewery. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually I'm going to do something boring and just throw everybody off. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's that. And then, you know, 20 mission, you know, my, you know, co-living project in San Francisco that I started in, uh, 20 mission.org. Right? Nope. That's a community site for throwing parties and stuff. Oh. Um, 20 mission.com. Uh, so, you know, the, the brewery in Columbia is called 20 mission cerveza. And, um, so, you know, by some metrics we're the largest independent brewery in Columbia now, which is great. 
Um, it's been, you know, pretty, pretty successful. Thanks. Um, is the beer good? The beer is good. Um, I go for a beer right now, but I'm on keto. Uh, <laughs> I don't really, I don't really drink that much anymore. I, uh, you know, I guess like you stare at spreadsheets about beer all day and kind of just. Sure. That know, makes sense. You know, but, um, you know, the occasional bender, but you know, for the most part, I'm, I don't, I don't remember the last time I had a beer, you know, a couple of weeks ago and then before that a month, you know, but, um, anyways, yeah. So, so no, that's going great. I love Columbia. I mean, it's, it's got its own set of difficulties. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult to navigate things like that locals and people that are really tied in. But you're um, used to navigating difficult things in the crypto space. You did it. Yeah, no, 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 exactly. But um, I keep telling myself never again. <laughs> so like next, next thing I do, I'm going to um, make sure it's the most regulation free, you know, industry on the planet or something like that. You know, I, you know, just, sell hot dogs or something. I don't know. Like something that like nobody's got issues with you, you know, cause you know, you're, you're competing with alcohol monopolies and, um, and that's just, that's just difficult. You know, you, you're going through the equivalent of like FDA registration and stuff like that. And it's just, it's just not fun. But, um, you know, I got, I got, a, I'm not working on it, but I've got one thing that I'm, you know, pretty, pretty excited about. Um, that my buddy launched and it, it reminds me back of the old crypto days. And I don't know if you've taken a look at it, but it's, um, uh, digits D I G T S. And I think it's dot I O anyway. So my buddy, my buddy, Ben way, um, he's working on uh, digits. Oh, I know Ben way. Oh, do you? He lives with Jeremy Gardner right now yeah. in Miami. Yeah. Yeah. I know Ben way. You ever get over there? I, you know, <laughs> my wife and I do not want to stay at Jeremy's house. <laughs> Have you seen any of his videos on Instagram? I, I've been there a few times, but um, I it's don't. It's not the place for a single man. It's not, or it is? It's not. <laughs> well, no, it is the place for a single man. It's not the place for a married man. Yeah, okay. There you go. Um, I don't want to put myself into a situation. Yeah, yeah, no. But Ben's a great guy. Um, really nice guy. He had his own TV show a while back for like, a day he was he was on a show and uh, he was on a show i was on the first episode i don't know if i were I, you really i i'm you know plug your ears ben i didn't actually watch it um no no but, i watched it yeah. i liked it and i didn't even know ben when i watched it i just liked the show yeah ben ben was helping me with the you know ben and i were, were, were good buddies we still are and um you know he came down and visited me once in columbia we you know he was helping me pitch um you know when i owned bitcoin.com and trade hill and um and you know raising money and we we couldn't raise any money at a two million dollar valuation you know with with having you know 20 percent of the entire world bitcoin markets <laughs> and, owning, and owning bitcoin.com so um things have changed uh so digits is is basically this has got me excited because um Basically, it's kind of a reverse payment processor, and I'm not going to do the best job explaining it, but I'm going to do it anyways. And you know, imagine when you when you when you have a company like BitPay. Um, BitPay goes out and they go to the mark the, the merchants and they go, okay, um, you know, Overstock.com or maybe that was Coinbase or Tiger Direct, whichever one's BitPay's got, right? They they go and they they say, okay, you sign up here. People go to your website and they and they 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 put it in a Bitcoin address or they send them 
coins to a Bitcoin address and we process it and we send you money. So Digits is kind of the opposite. So what they do is they built an app and um, instead of instead of getting the merchants, the goal is to get the processors on board. So the way it works is, you know, some of these processes are, are absolutely huge, you know, like, you know, controlling, you know, like 20% of the market or whatever, some of the big ones, right? Um, so you get somebody that controls 20% of the US or, or anywhere um, card processing. And then instead of, instead of getting the individual merchants, you get people that want to use crypto to buy things to sign up on your app and link it to your account. Like I think he's linked in with Coinbase. Um, you know, I'm not sure what other ways you can link it. And then what happens is you set it in your app to like pay with Bitcoin, you link it to your credit or debit card. And then when you go somewhere and you, and you pay with your card, the very first thing that happens is um, a call goes out to the, to the, to see if you have the app. And if you have the app, if you have enough balance to pay, if you do, it liquidates your coins and debits from that account instead of debiting from your, your, your debit account. I see it. So it allows you to use your credit card to pay with crypto essentially. Right. But the merchant doesn't even know you're paying with, with the crypto. The merchant has no idea. No, so they, don't, they don't have to sign up. They don't any of that. And the other thing it does is it, um, it basically, my understanding, it treats it as a loan instead of cashing out. So it kicks, it kicks your capital gains down the road. Um, I mean, you still owe them, you know, but sure. they're not. You can defer them and everything like that. Right, right, right. Um, so, you know, for me, it's amazing because you get a you couple. better give you some equity for pitching it now. <laughs> you get them as a sponsor. Yeah, I'll have to shoot Ben a link to this podcast. So you, you, anyways, you, you link these accounts and it, it could potentially open up the entire world to, to, you know, seamless Bitcoin payments. Um, you know, and there's no explaining to the local bar what Bitcoin is. I mean, you put Roger out of a job, you know, <laughs> nobody needs to go around and, and explain it to everybody. Sit down, Roger. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, for me, that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, you know, I think that the, you know, in crypto, just like everything else in life, timing is incredibly important. And if he would have begun work on it several years earlier, when literally every ICO was just going through the roof and he would have launched an ICO, um, yeah. I think he would have had $20 million in 15 minutes. Um, and, you know, because he's brilliant, he's got success, he's got good, a good team, he's got an amazing product, you know, and I think if he would have got that kind of money, you know, or ideally enough money to acquire a processor or something like that, um, you know, it there's no question that everybody would be talking about it. Sure. So, you know, my hope is that there's a real rally or some real interest from a, from a I think the bull market's coming. I think it is. I think that he just, you know, he couldn't wait forever to launch, but a lot of companies are in survival mode right now. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of companies that took that crypto and then, didn't divest it and then saw that crypto. <laughs> you know, they're like, hey, we raised $200 million I know that, and yeah. we've got 15. Um, got, yeah. You know, and you're like, yeah, it does go both ways. So, um, you know, I I think that, you know, he'll persevere and um, he's a resilient guy and he's, and he's, you know, it, it gets me excited because it, it reminds me of, of old Bitcoin when, um, you know, because it's, it's a major solution that, you know, obviously makes money for him, but 
um, and, you know, and people that, you know, use it because there's ways you can lend money to the network so that it has money supply and all this stuff. And, um, you know, but it's, it's a legit solution to the, to the, for the unbanked among, among other things, you know, like I, you know, something like, I don't know, what is it? 20%, a third, I don't even know of people that are unbanked, you know, unbanked, which is in the United States, which is like, insane you know and then when you start talking about you know more disenfranchised groups and and stuff like you know like you know let's just say like immigrants or or people that you know definitely undocumented workers and things like that you know um you know they're they can't bank but you could but you could do this you know and i think you know one of my one of my biggest use cases in the beginning that that blew my mind with bitcoin was the international remittance markets, um, you know, I, I think just from the United States is $500 billion a year. I feel like that's the holy grail of crypto. Yeah. And, you know, the average fees are something like nine and a half percent. And my numbers might be a little dated, but, you know, they, they haven't gone down to two or three percent. That's for sure. And, um, you know, if anything, they could have gone up. And, um, you know, most people send money through Western Union. And when you're sending small amounts, you might pay like 20% fee for like a really small amount. And, you know, you could have a guy that comes up here and, and works and every every month he sends money down to to um, Ecuador or Peru or wherever, you know. So for me, it's, it's, that's always been an exciting case. And, you know, this just opens it up to, to everybody and seamlessly. It sounds like you potentially could make a comeback in the crypto space. It sounds like they're, you're not fully out of it. I feel like you're giving me some hope now. Um, and I feel like maybe in a month or a year or two years, you'll wake up with a great idea for yeah. the crypto space and do something. Oh man, don't tempt me. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of enjoying not being, I mean, I'm I know, this I know. Often, I need to I'm, a break I'm, like, too. I'm like, Oh God, it feels so good to not be thinking about crypto. I mean, so I actually, I actually spent a couple of years building some exchange software that's pretty, pretty phenomenal. It offered, you know, something nobody else was offering. I thought, and um, you know, right when I was getting to launch it was when I had that identity theft, and it went on for like six months of just, just hell. You know, I mean, you know, getting locked out of accounts and losing your phone numbers and your bank accounts and. You can't focus on work at that point when you're going oh, through something like that, like a case or something. No, you you can't, and then also it just it just was kind of like a, it really turned me off for it, you know, for, for, you know, kind of, you know, money in general, um, you know, and more specifically, you know, crypto. Um, but you know what, you're still around, you're happy, you're healthy. Yeah. And, um, your yeah. legacy is etched in the world of the crypto history books. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, that's pretty good. I'm, I mean, I'm happy with what I did and, and I, uh, I'm glad to have been a part of it. And, you know, I, I don't think crypto would have necessarily died without me, but I, I feel good that I, that I helped it out a lot. And, um, you know, and for the right reasons, like I didn't, I honestly didn't think it was going to make it to the point of actually making good money. Isn't that crazy? I thought if it hit like 50 bucks or something, it would just be unreal. That's you know? it. $50 was like the goal. That's what people don't realize. Like that was our goal. Like when Bitcoin broke a hundred dollars, I was like, all right, it's over. I That's mean, it. When it, when, it, when it broke a dollar, I was like, I was, Parody, yeah. I was like, holy shit, this is like, 
I didn't think this was going to happen. This is amazing. And we were all like dancing around, you know, and, and then you look back on it and the money, the money supply was probably like 7 million or something at the time, yeah. you know, and now Bitcoin can easily go to 50, a hundred thousand, a million dollars, like no problem. I mean, if it yeah. did what it did in the past, I'd have to do the math. I mean, like, you know, I could see like 50 K seems like a pretty reasonable number. Like, you know, when you go above that, like, I think you're talking like, you know, some like global domination, you know, scenarios, you know, like, you know, like, you know, OPEC is like, yeah, you know, we decide to do a it's bullish. Bitcoin it's based barrel. Bullish. Put the Listen, barrel on Bitcoin. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. EST. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter, Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. See you next week.